Amazing Grace. What a beautiful testimonies to start our morning this morning. You've likely heard the song Amazing Grace, penned in 1772 by John Newton. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. You may not know, though, even if you've had very little experience with church in your life, you're likely familiar with that song, Amazing Grace. John Newton, the man, experienced many hardships in his life. Born in the early 1700s, he lost his mother at the age of six, became a part of the British Royal Navy, and tried to flee, tried to get out, and was ultimately his crew in West Africa gave him over to be a servant uh, of the slave trade industry where he served one of the ships. He was eventually broken free and uh, taken back on a ship up to England in which a, a, a wicked storm hit the ship and almost took it down, in which he cried out to God, please to save him, to rescue him. Well, that plea would not last very long. He eventually would go and, and get his own slave boat and participate in that industry for many years till eventually he did indeed come and interact with God's amazing saving grace. Coming to repentance and faith, he became an Anglican priest, writing over 250 hymns, one of them being Amazing Grace. He would give his life to try to see the industry that he partook of to, to end, and he partnered with the Christian William Wilberforce to, to end the British slave trade. Amazing Grace. The song that we hear so often in which the very beginning components reflects our actual lives, those that know Christ, just as we saw in these three testimonies a moment ago, all have the same reality, that they were wretched against God, rebels against the holy God, that on their own are not good people, none are good, but God alone, that they were once spiritually blind, that they were once lost, that very profession and observation and confession is a recognition of God's amazing grace beginning to seep down into someone's soul, the very recognition that we are broken, dead in sin, that we love the sensual pleasures we pursue. We're blinded in our spiritual state. And yet, by God's grace, why do we gather to sing? It's not that component. It's that His amazing grace has entered into our lives. That we can now see we've been found. We know the Lord Jesus Christ. We have eternal life. We know the very one that made us. We were created through. We were rescued by Him. And we serve Him with our lives. And we give our lives to see others come to know Jesus. Until He calls us home. And we see Him face to face. The Jesus who lived a sinless life was crucified and resurrected, ascended to heaven. And He will come again one day in judgment. As we look at our text today, we gain insights into this amazing grace. The very central big idea this morning is this. We who sing amazing grace must never forget that I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Here is my hope for this morning as we take a, a, a deeper look into the unbeliever. And this shouldn't be too difficult for us, those of us that know Christ. Because if we know Christ, we know our lives before Christ, but the Scriptures illuminate us in a greater way. The Scriptures show us that before we came to Christ, we were not neutral, waiting for enough evidence to tip the scales. Before we came to Christ, we were pursuing, we were suppressing the truth and the righteousness. We were broken, we were lost, we were spiritually blind. We were wretched. Sinners against the holy God. And so, my prayer this morning is that as we interact with those that don't yet know Christ, friends, family, neighbors, co-workers, classmates, 
that, that an understanding of what they may not even be aware of because they're spiritually blind would give us a boldness and a compassion and a consistency to continue to present to them the gospel. For it is very possible by which the same amazing grace that's entered into our lives and brought us from spiritual death to life as believers will interact in their lives. So be consistent and passionate and joyed to proclaim the gospel. This is the good news we have this morning. Let's look as we look at verse 3. A reminder from last week that the lost often have an argument for unbelief, when in reality they're suppressing the truth because of a love of their sin and pride. So there's usually an argument. It's usually not just, I don't care. Sometimes it is that. I've interacted with many people in which I ask, are you a believer? I'm not. Have you ever considered Christ? I really don't care. A full state of apathy, claimed apathy. Or there's reasons that are given for why they don't believe in God. Remember, the unbelievers in 2 Peter, this letter we're working through, unbelievers have seeped in among the church, they've skilled enough, they know the Bible well enough to to gain some authority as teachers, and then they've led many astray. They're leading many astray. So they have a familiarity with the Scriptures, but they twist them. And he tells us here, knowing this first of all, that the scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Now, what I want to do is I want you to flip in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 24. We're going to note a couple of similarities with the unbeliever from what Scripture tells us is anthropology, this understanding of the nature of man. Between Romans chapter 1 and this text here in 2 Peter chapter 3. And we're going to note the similarities and pray that God would give us a greater understanding and a greater boldness and compassion to present Jesus to others because... The Holy Spirit, God is still in the business of bringing dead people to life. Amen? That's what we're a representation of. That's what baptism in that way represents. Here's three entering the waters representative of their death, their spiritual death. And yet they've been hidden in Christ, buried with Him, and raised to walk in newness of life. At the end of our service, after at the end of the sermon, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. And this is for believers. If you've not yet trusted Christ, this is not for you. But we would compel you. We would ask you to give your life to Christ and come to know Him. This is a public profession and demonstration and proclamation of the Lord's death until He comes again. That all who believe will come to eternal life because of what Christ has done. Not because of who we are, but because what He's done on our behalf. And how He's called us to live as His children across the number of days that He gives us upon this earth. So look at Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 24. Let's look, and we're going to note together three similarities between Romans chapter 1 and 2 Peter. These verses that we've been working through in chapter 2 and chapter 3 about those who don't know Christ but may have a familiarity with Christian things. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Pewback Bible, that's page 939. It says, for the wrath of God, Paul writes, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Imagine somebody holding a beach ball under the water. There's an active suppression of the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And the things that have been made. So they are without an excuse. So the unbeliever, those that does not know Christ, they are what? Those two words? Without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds, animals, and creeping things. Now, therefore, four horrifying words. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And the chapter, of course, continues on. But a number of similarities I want to point out rather quickly. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, were, were described as the unbelievers, they Uh, they're enticed that the false teachers, they're led by their sensuality, not led by the Spirit, not anchored in the Word of God. And that's a similarity. So they they take many in the congregations, the churches, they take them captive by teaching this idea of, yes, Jesus, but also live it up, do what you want. But the problem is, as the believers, our hearts are to do what God desires us to do. So we we war against the flesh. We we know that Christ's way is the greater way, as we discussed in chapter 1. But they're led by this way of sensuality. And that's exactly what we see here in Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. I think one of the largest dangers that we make in our lives is to pretend like those that don't yet know Christ are neutral. So imagine this, this statue of Lady Liberty blinded and with the scales. In our culture, unbelievers often present themselves as, I would believe if you just gave me enough evidence. I mean, I would go where the evidence leads. Scripture says that's not true. Scripture says God has, the very God who knit you together in your mother's womb, the one that you know exists, but you suppress the truth. You're not objective. You're blinded like Lady, Lady, Lady Liberty, but you're blinded in a pursuit of your sin. You're not an issue of, can I get enough evidence, but it's an issue of, I want to do what I want to do. We'll see a further description of this in just a few verses. But so, so, so what do we say about this? Does this mean questions about God are bad or anything? No, we're not saying that. As a matter of fact, God uses crises in life, sickness and death and hurts, so oftentimes to bring people to Himself. So God will oftentimes use questions. So we encourage you, ask questions about God. Ask questions about Scripture if you have them. And if you haven't trusted Christ, whatever those questions are, share them with us. Email us at elders at gracebiblechurch.com. Come share with us at the, at the very end of the service. We'll be here to talk with you. Anytime, we'd love to sit down and talk. You can call us, email us, text us anytime, please. But here's what we see. Because God uses these questions like stepping stones across the river. He'll, he'll give you a burden and leads you across to himself with questions a lot of times. But if we're honest, a lot of times questions that we use are actually like cockroaches hiding from light. Anything will do, just give me something to hide under. Because we have an active desire before we know Christ of sensuality, of pursuit of the flesh. So that's what the Scriptures teach us here. So ask you this question, who do you give evidence to? Who gets evidence in a courtroom? Who gets evidence? The judge. So, before I knew Christ, before we knew Christ, we said, hey, just give me enough evidence and I believe. What are we doing? We're sitting in the judge's seat. You see the foolishness? If we went to a courtroom setting and you were on trial, but instead you got up and you said, move over, and you sat in the judge's seat and said, present to me the evidence. 
And imagine the court case continued on and the, and the prosecutor started to present evidence to you as though you're the judge. What a, what a misconduct of justice that would be. It'd be foolish. If you were a spectator, a witness, you'd be, what is happening here? This is chaos. But that's what, as unbelievers, we're so darkened in our love of sin. That's what we do. We sit on the judgment throne of Jesus and we say, give me evidence in order to believe in Jesus. But apart from Him, we can know nothing with certainty. We're not neutral. No man, no woman, no boy, no girl is neutral before God. As we'll see in a moment, we, people on their own can't find God for the same reason that a bank robber can't find a police officer. They don't want to. Right? We have stake in the game. And so we use questions, but we always bring it to a proclamation of the gospel. There's your take-home application. We always go back to the cross. We always present the truth of the gospel. Because some will not believe. To them, this message will be foolishness. What a waste of life. But ironically, apart from a God who sustains them, what is there is no purpose to life. How can you waste something that has no purpose? But they know there's purpose. Their conscience bears witness against them at night. There is a judge they will stand before. A God who loves them and cares for them. Who knows their every thought and every moment and every sin, every secret thing. And as we saw last week, they will give an account to the judge. But the good news is if they will but come to Christ, confessing their sin and trusting in Jesus, they will have everlasting life. For the judge is a perfect Savior. Isn't that true? That's what we see in these commonalities. We see likewise that what happens to the unbelievers, they become like the things that they worship. Even though advances may happen. Look at the technology that our culture has. Incredible technological advances. But apart from the grace of God, we don't progress toward Christ. We progress toward animalistic morality. Now look at our culture right now. Look at the culture of the world. The world cultures. We celebrate death from euthanasian practices that are taking a place all over the world. We're talking children. We're talking perfectly healthy people in many countries that are allowed to, they just don't want to live, so they have assisted suicides. Out of an argument, that's a way of life. We have destruction of life in the context of the womb and presented as though it's health care. Our culture progresses not toward godliness, but towards idolatry. And that's what he says right here 2,000 years ago. And we know it's true in our hearts. We're not neutral. But by the amazing grace of God, I once was lost, but now am found. I'm going to give you an ex example, an illustration. I want you to imagine for a moment, what do they do in Romans chapter 1? They give approval to those that even that act wickedly because they're so suppressing the truth. Anything will do. I want you to go with me in an example. Let's say you're going to work tomorrow. Imagine you're going to work tomorrow and on your way and you've got a big meeting and you spill coffee on your shirt. Totally embarrassing. But you don't have enough time to go home and change. You've got this stain on your shirt. And so, all of a sudden though, you look over to the person beside you, and they've got a coffee stain on their shirt too. And even though you still feel awkward and are out of place, you look at each other and you do this finger point thing. You ever done that? Like, you're both... Got stains, but you have stains together. Now you have some camaraderie in this. And you look across the room, and there's this kind of weird friend of yours. They see 
the two of you with stains on your shirt, and they just go for it. They just dump coffee on their shirt. You're thinking, that's weird, but I love it. Now we're on this together. And then person four, person five, all across the room, everybody stains their shirts. Everybody in the room now has a coffee-stained shirt. And you know you're unclean. You know you're impure. But it feels good to have camaraderie. You give approval to everybody that does so. Misery loves companies and often saying, well, so is sin and sensuality. It's what the Scriptures teach. And I want you to imagine this situation that somebody then comes into the room that just has this like, endless supply of perfect, pure, radiant shirts. And they offer them to the room. Nobody takes up, but you decide. I, you look at them and you realize and you're reminded of how dirty and impure you are. You say, I, I want one. And you receive his shirt and he takes your shirt and puts it on himself. And now your presence in the room is what to the rest of the room? Your very presence of one who's been forgiven or, or pure in this sense is itself a proclamation of judgment. Now, I want you to imagine this situation. Let's take this illustration even further. Imagine that those in the room begin to say, you know what? Our shirts are not stained. This is the way they're supposed to be. This is natural. This is good. Would you engage them in a debate? No. It'd be kind of foolish if you did, wouldn't it? Because you'd be like, yeah, but look at your shirt and look at my shirt. It's clearly that's stained. And then they begin to say, the person that came into the room, I, don't, I think you're delusional. I don't think he even exists. So your, your statement and your life change is itself foolishness to the world that is perishing. But the grace of our God in Christ is newness of life and purity because of what Christ has done for us. That's the goodness of our God. So mockers will mock. Scoffers will scoff. But we continue on to verse 4-7 through and we note that the lost may be comfortable with creation. We get more details into the arguments that those that don't know Jesus may be comfortable with. The lost may be comfortable with creation, but scoff at God's caring God's keeping and the approaching day of judgment. I am. I love you, Jerome. I need you in my life every day. I need this encouragement. A 2018 Pew study of Americans found that 9 out of 10 Americans, 90%, believed in a higher power. Matter of fact, that's not threatening at all. I have unbelieving friends, unbelieving family members still. And if I were to ask them, do you believe in a higher power? And they said, yeah. Part of that can be a little comforting. But in reality, what are they saying? You see, these false teachers believed in creation. They believed God created things. But they mocked at the idea that God cares. They mocked that God is intimately personal with His creation. They mock at the idea of Jesus who reigns and will come again in judgment. They scoff at that. And so too we can see even in our own world. In verse 4, he says, uh, look at verse 5 actually. Look at the motive. We'll get a further insight into the motive. They're like bank robbers who just can't find a police officer. Why? Look at verse 5. For they deliberately overlook this fact. And then we'll look at the argument in just a moment, what they overlook. But the point is that they deliberately overlook the evidence. They don't want to see it. 
They don't want to repent of their sins. They don't want to give up control of their life to Jesus Christ. They don't desire it. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And if they can feel better to say, you know what, maybe there is a God who started everything, but I don't think He really is involved. After all, X, Y, or Z. And that's what they're doing here. They have enough credibility, enough spiritual language, the idea of the patriarchs. They know of the patriarchs, we'll see, in the Hebrew Scriptures. But they will deny the power of Christ and His coming. They deliberately overlook this fact. And what do they say in verse 4? Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs in the Scriptures, ever since they fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They're making this basic argument If God really cared how we were living and what we're doing was really actually wrong, wouldn't He come and stop us from doing it? The patriarchs are all still dead. They've not been raised up. You see their argument. And we'll see how Peter addresses their argument. Their argument is, in short, as Peter summarizes, we've not yet died, therefore we will never die. It's a bad argument, right? It's like being a student and not doing any of your homework, but saying, I cannot fail this class because I've not yet been failed in this class. What? And so as we look at this context of our our passage today, we want to ask ourselves a question, what kind of Jesus are we worshiping? And be, be aware of people that may proclaim a Christianity or a Jesus that does not care how one lives. Beware of a, of, of a person, a type of Christianity, when somebody may come and say, yeah, but Jesus, I don't think there's really a judgment. It's foolishness. It's dangerous. Look at how he answers their question. Look at verse 5 through 7. Look at how he handles their argumentation. Verse 5 through 7, we note that God has already once, I've summarized it this way, God has already once and will again bring worldwide judgment upon the ungodly. That's the bad news. What's the good news? Their only hope is Jesus Christ, the great ark. He destroyed the world once with water. He gave us a rainbow and promised to never do that again. But he will judge the world, as we'll see next week, by fire. Purifying fire. The judgment of Christ. He will judge all things. And all wicked. That's the bad news, but the good news is that Jesus is a sufficient ark. Take refuge in him. What do they overlook? Three components we see here. In verse 5, they overlook the fact that Jesus was intimately involved, that God was intimately involved in all of creation. He says they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago. So, so God, the Scriptures teach that God created all things ex nihilo, out of nothing. And the earth was formed from water and through water by the Word of God. That God, by His very Word, was intimately involved in creation. Incredibly involved in creation. And so some people present a God who's like this, they call the the, the blind clockmaker God, who started it, this grandfather clock God, who started it, set it, and forget it. And that God is actually appealing for many people. Why? Because, okay, I got an idea of cause and effect, that makes sense, creation, but He doesn't care how we live. What a terrible presentation of God. Let's be honest, if, if myself as a father of my three boys made these three boys and just abandoned them. 
even if I gave them enough sustenance to live, what kind of father would you view me? I, I certainly wouldn't be permitted to continue to be the pastor, lead pastor of this congregation. But people will embrace an idea of God like that, but they would be appalled at a morality of a man like that. Amazing in that judgment, it's acceptable in their eyes to be greater than the God that they find appealing, a higher power God. He is not a higher power God. He is the triune God of all creation. And we're told in Colossians chapter 1 of Jesus that He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He made you and He cares about you. He cares about the one who is walking and blinded by their sin wickedness. He cares. He cares about the world that He brought form from void as the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters. He cares. Your context that seems so small, He cares. Your sin that seems like no big deal because you can just forget it and move on, He cares because it's against a holy God. He cares. And by His Word, He tells us here that He will come again. He will come again. God is good. God is just. God is loving and caring. And God has set a day of judgment by which He will come and judge the living and the dead. If you don't know Christ, this is not a scare tactic. It's the truth. But it's called gospel, good news, this proclamation that all who trust Christ will be saved. That song, Amazing Grace. Listen to Newton's words. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my, my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. The earth will soon dissolve like snow. The sun forbear to shine. But God who calls me here below will be forever mine. To the perishing foolishness, but by the grace, the amazing grace of our God, the good news of everlasting life, an abundant life today. He loves you and cares for you, beloved. Do you know Him? And as believers who've given our sin to Him, by grace know Him as our God. We know Him as servant, but also as an heir in Christ. We know a grace that transforms our life. We forgive because we've been forgiven much. We are a people marked by compassion and grace and joy and hope and love because that's what we've received in Christ and you can too. That's what we celebrate as people as you look around in a moment. We partake of the Lord's Supper as people who know Christ and we're reminded that you're my brother, you're my sister in Christ because of what He's done for us. His grace is amazing and transformative and if you don't know Him, you can get in on it. That's how great our God is. The false teachers are presenting a God who is better because He will not judge anyone. But in reality, they've created an idol 
that is not worthy of worship. But our God is worthy of worship. Amen? This leads us into our next steps today. Number one, as the Spirit of God beginning to open your eyes to God's mercy, grace, and love for us in Christ. Not long ago, I was speaking with, a, with an older man in his 50s who had been to church for many, many years, and yet just now he's beginning to understand grace. He's understanding and wrestling with, wait, there's nothing I do? And while I was yet a sinner, Christ would die for me? The grace of God is shaking his life and transforming him already as a husband and as a man. If you've never understood the gospel, if you've never understood the message of grace, and you say, you know what, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I'm wicked and broken. I know I can't clean myself up. I've tried. And you look to Jesus and say, I want to know Him. Not simply do I want forgiveness, I do, but I want to know Him. I want to serve Him. I want to give my life to Him. I want to be adopted by Him. I want to know the God who made me and sustains me. I want to know the God who's making all things new and give your life to Christ. Say, God, forgive me a sinner. I give my life to You. Lead my life until I see You face to face and will be with You forever. Give your life to Christ today. We'll be here after the service to talk with you of what that means. What a gift that God gives us of everlasting life. Amen? Amen. It leads us secondly. Our God is in the business of finding the lost and giving the spiritually blind sight. So would you pray that God would bring people into your life that don't know Him? That God would bring people into your life that do not know Him. That you would be able to proclaim this good news with boldness. Why? Because you can't change anyone's mind. Yes, no evidence. Yes, no arguments. Present them. But always go to the Gospel. You know, every time the Gospel is shared, it is very possible you're literally going to witness a miracle of a dead person coming to life. We should never stop sharing the good news of Christ that is marked and transforming our life. Amen? So, so pray this week. Would you pray with me this week that God would bring people that don't know Him into your life? And third, this is an additional point, not in the context of these, before we look at the Lord's Supper, lean into community. If you're a college student, we're going to have breakfast, this massive breakfast. So many pigs. So much food is over here for you to eat. If you're a college student, please go eat it. It's in Henderson Hall. It's a time of fellowship. Lean in to get to know people. Lean in and build community together. And church family, one of the ways we do so before we observe the Lord's Supper together, those of us that have professed faith in Christ, is our monthly prayer calendar that a team of ladies does a tremendous job, a diligent work, putting it together. So if you're a child in our room today, if you're one of our kids, K-5, we're so happy you're here with us, you take one of these with you too and put it in your room. So have your parent, make sure they put one out on the fridge or somewhere where they can see it. But if you're a child with us today, take one and put it in your room where you can see it and pray for our church family through the week. And not all of these are just needs in our church. Some of these are just commonalities that we can be in the trenches praying together as a church family. What a great way to build community together. And by the way, if you ever have needs of these that you would like to be involved in these, email us and let us know so we can make sure those get included there. Beloved, one of the joys that we have together on this day is observing the ordinance of baptism and also that great gift that God has given the church of the Lord's Supper. As often as we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. 
We proclaim a number of components. We proclaim in the Lord's Supper uh, who He is. As you came in today, if you're a believer in Christ, you've turned from sin and placed your trust in Christ, uh, then, then hopefully you would have seen one of these. If you didn't get one of those, we can come around and serve you with one of those. If you're a believer and you've not received one of these, we want to make sure you have one to be able to partake of this together as a congregation. But we proclaim who the Lord is. We proclaim that the eternal Son of God took on flesh. Jesus Christ is fully God, fully man. Meaning He had a literal body with literal blood. Needed to eat, needed to sleep, needed to drink, all these things. We proclaim that 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 is exactly who Jesus is. And that He lived the sinless life, fulfilled all the demands of the Scriptures, laid His life down on the cross. That He died on the cross for our sin. He became sin for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we would become the righteousness of God. So we proclaim who He is and we proclaim in this way who we are. And that's why we would ask, if you don't yet know Christ, don't partake of this physically with us, but we would ask as we partake of this again, the last Sunday of every month, then the month of April, that you give your life to Christ and you'll be able to partake of the Lord's Supper with us. We proclaim what He did and we proclaim, listen, where He is. Jesus Christ bodily resurrected and bodily ascended, the right hand of the Father. He intercedes for us. He knows us. He cares for us. The Holy Spirit intercedes with us for, for sometimes for groans too deep for understanding. And Jesus says, you do this until He comes again. We proclaim where He is and where He will be. We will receive eventually, after His reign, we'll receive a new heavens and new earth on the earth. He'll, we will reign with Him and be with Him for eternity. And so this is like a fellowship meal. A very small fellowship meal. <laughs> small it is. But it's a fellowship meal that we eat together as brothers and sisters in Christ. So if you are a, a brother or sister in Christ, if you've repented of sin and placed your trust in Christ, now let's partake of this meal together. In 2 Peter, this book that we've been working through, if you remember, he's anchored the believers into a faith that they've received of equal standing with the apostles. Why? Because of what Christ has done on their behalf. The apostles didn't get some CEO plan and they didn't get some bottom line worker plan. No, we are, His blood has covered us over. His body broken for us. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians, describes it in this way. As he summarizes what the Lord did at the time of the Passover, reinstituting the Passover meal, reinstituting it for those who believed in Christ now to partake of those that are in the new covenant made by Christ's blood. Paul summarizes it for the church in Corinth in this way, verse 23. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night when He was betrayed, He took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But there was shedding of blood once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. As you take a moment and look around, this is a part of your church family. We'll spend eternity together. And so we have offense with one another, let us reconcile those offenses. And to realize that there are brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world, as has been taking place for the last 2,000 years, who have been celebrating and proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. Continuing on in 1 Corinthians, verse 25. 
In the same way also, Jesus took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Would you pray with me? Oh, holy God, that we can come before you with confidence is a miracle. That you would love us so much. That we would have life and adoption. That we would be demonstrations of your glory as you work in us. We thank you that you've proclaimed us and announced us to be holy because of what Christ has done. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for working in our life progressively and making us look more and more and more like Christ. We confess our sin to you this day. And we pray for boldness and courage and joy and hope and love as we go into our places of work and our classes and our neighborhoods this week. God, give us a boldness to see others. Give us a courage to stop and to pray with others. Help us to see others as you do, Lord. Give us a greater joy and a peace this week as we remember the amazing grace that has marked now by your great kindness our lives and bring many more to salvation. We know you're abundantly able. We do love you and we thank you for the privilege, the privilege of gathering together this morning. In Jesus' name, all God's people said together. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing?